Luke 19, and it starts off with Luke writing, uh, kind of giving us uh, us, uh, his his take on uh, the triumphal entry, as it's called. And he, he starts off in verse 28, and he says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Uh, and, the, uh, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And, he wrote, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so here we have Luke's um, account of the triumphal entry of this first Palm Sunday. And as uh, Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, as he is put upon this donkey and he uh, comes down the Mount of Olives and uh, into the Kidron Valley, and he's going to come up and through the East Gate there um, to make his way to the Temple Mount, there, uh, there is a cry that comes out over Jerusalem, a, a familiar cry. And, and uh, the other Gospels tell us that, that there was just this massive swelling in the city. There was a massive crowd due to uh, Passover being near, and uh, everyone needed to, to um, migrate there for, to celebrate that ceremony, to celebrate the festival. And so there's this massive crowd, and this, a, a cry kind of comes out over the city as Jesus is making his way down. And, and, and they shout out uh, a prophecy, something that we find um, uh, uh, in Psalm 118. And they also use uh, another, another specific word. And what they're speaking of, what they're in, in anticipation of, is salvation, if you notice in our text, what, what it says there is they're, they're praising God for the, uh, with a loud voice for the mighty works that they've seen, and they're saying some specific things. And the method by which Jesus is coming in on this, on this, colt, on this donkey is uh, it's, it's a prophetic method. He is fulfilling prophecy in the way that he arrives. And we find this prophecy in Zechariah 9. Verse 9, it says, Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so in riding into Jerusalem in this manner, Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives is making a deliberate claim to be the Messiah, to be Israel's savior. And it says as they as they rode along, uh, the, the people there who were a part of that multitude and they were celebrating him and they were thankful to God for the good works he've done, he's done, but they, 
in their minds, there's salvation bound up in this man, in this figure. <clears throat> and so as they come, they, they take off their cloaks and, and they're spreading them across the road. They're taking, uh, you know, their, their different uh, articles of clothing and, and putting them there, making a path. And this was uh, reminiscent of what you would do uh, greeting a ruler who was coming to the city. You know, we talked last week about um, uh, Jesus being ushered into the city of Colossae in a, in a parade, uh, a sense of a parade. And this is kind of a similar in nature. They're welcoming this, this ruler. They're giving him this royal treatment. Uh, but Jesus isn't riding in on just this huge, majestic white horse or uh, standing in a chariot waving at the crowds, but rather he's coming, entering in a way in humility. He's riding uh, this donkey in. And, and he's, it's just a simple method and he's taking his time as he's making his way down the Mount of Olives, and the people are celebrating. They're pumped. Now, they're saying, it tells us, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so the people, they kind of have this idea. They have this understanding. They're looking for salvation. That's what Zechariah 9.9 says. He is just in having salvation. And these people are looking for salvation. And so they're, they're quoting uh, Psalm 118, 26. Uh, there when they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're bestowing this title upon Jesus. That he is this savior. He is the one who will be king. He is the one who will rule over them. And at this time in history, the Jews are living under the Roman uh, occupation. They are occupied and, and ruled under Roman law. They are uh, subject to Caesar and all that comes with the Roman Empire. And so they're looking for a way out. They've, they want to be free of their Roman oppressors. And so when they see this king coming through, when they see that he's riding on uh, the foal of a donkey, he's coming down, their minds instantly go to Psalm 118. And the rabbis had always taught that when Messiah comes, then the people will sing this psalm. And so they're, 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 they're primed. It's, it's just a ripe moment. They're ready for it. And as they, uh, as they see this happening, they begin to shout out this, this song. You know, blessed is he, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But Matthew tells us uh, that the people were, were doing more than that. In, in Matthew 21, 19, this is, he, he elaborates a little bit further and he tells us this. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they were using a specific term, Hosanna which is rooted in Israel's history. Uh, and and in, in this term, it means save now or save please. And this term is it's, the way that they use it in this moment uh, is, um, and it's kind of developed in its use over Israel's history. It went from a, a term that simply meant uh, a desperation, calling out to, to save please, save us, you know, uh, but also began to simultaneously, people would say this term, save now, save now, when they saw help arriving. 
So it would be both something that was anticipation of crying out. It came to have this double meaning where, where we know we're in trouble. We need help. We're crying out for help. Save now. Save, please. But also, when they see help arriving, they're simultaneously saying, we get it. We see that you are the help. You are the one who's going to save us. And so they're crying out with this term. And it, uh, Matthew tells us um, that they're also using, not only are they laying their cloaks down, but they're pulling branches off of these uh, palms that are there, these date palms. And that they're waving the branches and they're laying the branches down in the road. Now, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us. It just means that people are a little bit crazy and they don't have a flag, so they want to have branches and do their thing. But this was a, a highly charged symbol in Israel's history because the palm frond, that, that symbol of, of the palm branch in Israel's history, it was linked to the Maccabean revolt. It was linked to, it, it, was, it was on, if you look at, um, you know, Jewish coins, there's a palm frond on their money. It, it symbolizes freedom. And so when they were fighting uh, in revolution before, that was their symbol. It was freedom. The palm frond meant we are going to be free. And so they, would, they brought these palm fronds out to wave at Jesus and to put on the ground before him as, they, as the, uh, the colt with, with Jesus walked upon this down into Jerusalem. Now, they were expecting to see Jesus come into Jerusalem and <clears throat> overthrow the Romans and to take his seat upon the throne there and overthrow uh, any sort of force that would come against Israel. But Jesus wasn't going to rule on a temporal throne, but he was going to come and to defeat sin and death reconciling us to God. And so as he entered on this Palm Sunday, as he made his way down to Jerusalem to sit upon uh, on this donkey declaring uh, who he was, that he is the king, that he is the Messiah, and the people saw this, they saw that he was declaring himself to be king, they thought, we're going to be free from Rome. We're bringing out these palm fronds to represent freedom. We're chanting this Psalm 118, this song that we're supposed to sing. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We're shouting out Hosanna. We know our salvation is here. But this Palm Sunday wasn't the day that they would be freed from Rome. But this Palm Sunday was an event that was foreshadowing a greater event, an eternal Palm Sunday. So flip over with me to the book of Revelation, and we'll see this. This is what, what happens in Revelation chapter 7. <clears throat> Revelation 7, verse 9. <clears throat> it says this, After this, I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number <clears throat> from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, in Revelation 7, we see that there's an eternal Palm Sunday, an eternal event, where all 
uh, these great multitudes that are so large they can't even be numbered. And it's not only the Jewish nation who's saved here, but it says all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all languages. You see, if Jesus overthrew Rome at that triumphal entry, that first Palm Sunday, the Jews would be saved. And they would have overthrown Rome and they would be free from oppression, but they would still be under the bondage of sin. They would still be subject to death. And none of these other nations, none of these other peoples would ever be here accounted for in Revelation 7. None of them would ever be having these white robes. Never, they would never be waving these palm branches that represent freedom, that, that they declare salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so there had to be the cross that first Palm Sunday. As Jesus went and made his way into the city, he didn't come to sit upon the throne there, but to make sure that all nations would have salvation. That all men, every sin that has ever been committed would be dealt with later that week at the cross. And this is what the disciples, they, they didn't understand. But Jesus understood. Jesus knew what was going on. And we see this in the purpose of his life. In Mark 10.45, it tells us, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So he had a purpose. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And as he came to the earth, he kept, uh, he, he kept on his mission. He was sent here to give his life as a ransom for many. And Hebrews uh, 10.7 tells us that he was always obedient to the Father. He says, he, uh, he says, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. I've come to do your will. Jesus is always obedient to the Father. He had purpose to his coming, to his life. So he didn't just come to save a couple people by riding in on a colt and overthrowing Rome and having this temporal kingdom. He came to establish an everlasting kingdom. Now, we see this with his path of purpose. Flip over to Luke 9. and We'll, we'll dig in there. Luke 9, verse 51. We see the purpose that Jesus has come with. He had purpose to his life, and we see this path set before him. <clears throat> Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So here we see Jesus has purpose in his journey to Jerusalem. He's not just wandering around for no reason, but he's come here for a purpose. He's come here for a reason. And it tells us in verse 51 that he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, 
Jesus had been telling the disciples for like, we measure it in chapters. I'm guessing it's years. Um, but chapters and chapters and chapters that he must be suffer, that he must suffer and be killed. In Luke 9.22, just a little bit earlier, I mean, you would think they're on their way to Jerusalem. Here's what's happening. Luke 9.22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus has this purpose. He knows why he's coming there. He's got to go to where uh, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes are. He's making his way to Jerusalem. He knows in his mind what's happening. But look at uh, what we see here with James uh, and John. They say, at this moment where they're, where they're kind of being rejected by this Samaritan city, they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire to come, uh, to come down from heaven and consume them? Like, I don't know what they were thinking. Like, let's just think of like the most coolest trick we could do. And Jesus will enable us to do it because like, how dare you? Like, we're going to Jerusalem. And... and James and John got the name Sons of Thunder. Uh, you know, they were just, had this hot temper, always wanted to like, just uh, set light people up here. And we see this contrast between Jesus and James and John. Jesus knows the path that he's on, but this response by James and John, it shows that they have something different in mind. They think, we're going to Jerusalem, finally. Jesus has been saying we're going to go there, and the only reason that we'd be going there is because Jesus is the king, and we see him as this king on the way to conquer, and we're going to go there, and it's going to be awesome, and we're going to have this huge parade, and every, you know, we, Jesus already has this massive multitude following him. He's got the hugest following ever, and, and as they're making their way down there, you know, I'm sure they're playing over in their minds all the, all the crazy things that like are going to happen as the result. And it's true Jesus was the king, and he is going there to conquer, but not in the way that they think. They didn't understand that Jesus' goal in going to Jerusalem was to defeat sin and death. They didn't understand that Jesus' method of conquering was through his own death. And if we fail to understand that, we get off track as disciples. Because we think following Jesus equals conquering whatever we want in our life. But following Jesus means following him in the path of Christ, in the path of the cross. And so they mistake what it even means to be a disciple. They don't understand that Jesus is going to conquer by suffering through his own death. They miss it. And so they have a mistaken idea about this kingdom that Jesus is establishing. You see, when Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, it meant something completely different uh, for Jesus than it did for the disciples. Two totally different understandings. The disciples were pumped. They thought, great, we're going to Jerusalem. It is like the epicenter of our faith. It's the epicenter of this culture. We need to go there. That, that's where, um, you know, we'll rule the nation from there. And, and, you know, no doubt this is why they were probably arguing, you know, in, uh, you, you know, just surrounding this event about who's the greatest. 
Like, I'm the, who's the greatest disciple? You know, like around the way there, like, I'm going to get to sit next to Jesus. When he rules and reigns, he's on the throne. I'm going to sit here and you're going to sit here. And they're trying to like figure out like who's going to be ranked number one, number two. Like they they're, they're have these, mind, these grand visions of what it's going to be like. But Jesus had something completely different in mind. Because for Jesus to set his face to go to Jerusalem meant that he was setting his, his, his um, priority, his focus, to go and die. And that's definitely not what the disciples were thinking. They weren't thinking, awesome, let's go to Jerusalem so that way Jesus can die. Jesus, the way that he thought about going to Jerusalem, it, it meant that he was nearing the end of his life that he was going to suffer horribly. And so Jesus tells these guys, I'm going to show you the way, and I want you to walk this path with me. I want, I want you guys to see what, have this purpose, and I want you to, behind this purpose, is a path that I'm going to walk, and I'm going to show you how to walk it. Now, if you uh, continue in verse 57, we see Jesus laying this out for them, walking as he calls them to walk this path with them. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, here, as Jesus continues, he calls the disciples to count the cost of following him. And that's why he points out what it's like to follow him. He says, you got, you know, he, we see that they don't have an under, understanding of why they're going there, and now he's pointing it out. You guys don't get what it means to follow me. You're following me to Jerusalem, but you think we're about to have like this massive party and we're going to rule and reign and you're going to sit on my left and my right. We're going to have this massive feast. It's going to be epic. And Jesus tells them, guys, count the cost. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What he means is that those who are his disciples aren't focused on earthly comforts. It's not to say that that you can't ever have a home or a bed or a place to put your head, but to say that you're not so attached to it in a sense. These foxes, these birds, they have a place for them to stay. But following me means that we're always about the Father's mission, walking the path with him. And he has these other encounters where he calls someone to follow him. But look at the response. Jesus says, follow me. And then this man replies, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
The second says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. In both of those responses, we've got the classic uh, human response. Verse 59, Lord, me first. I know you want me to do something, but me first. Both of them. Both guys say, this is all about me. Me first. Let me do this first. Me first. The the second guy says, you know, I want to follow you, but let, let me put me first. And that's not the way of following Jesus. Jesus says to these men, following me is walking the path with me, going with me. Now, to be clear, Jesus certainly isn't saying that like you can't attend a funeral because what, what these men are, are more insinuating is like they want to go and live out their lives with their families and make sure that their, uh, you know, their parents are dead and gone before. It's not like someone's on their deathbed and like, oh, my father just died. Like, I'll be back in a day. That's not what's happening. If you, uh, as, a, as a Jewish person, if you died, you had to be like buried that same day. So um, this isn't like a quick like, I'll be back in six hours. This is like, let, let me go when my father finally passes away, then I will come back to you. I don't know how long that's going to be, but we'll see. So Jesus is calling these people to have a priority. And this is what James and John had to learn and what we all need to learn. Because James and John, they wanted to call down fire and be like, bam, let's just blow this place up. Let's strike it down. That's what they wanted to do because they had this idea that like we're all powerful because we're with Jesus and like we can we can do anything because he's going to be the king. So it doesn't really matter what we do. And they don't understand that following Jesus means giving up, laying down your life. And that's how we often get confused. When we have that mistaken view of the kingdom, we view Jesus as someone who's going to conquer the areas that we want to rule over rather than calling us to come and die with him. We get confused in walking that path with him. And so that's why Jesus calls these men to walk with them. So for Jesus to set his face to Jerusalem to go and die, and he says, come walk the path with me, he's telling these guys, come and die. Follow me. We have to set our faces in that similar sense to go and die with him. Uh, the great pastor and uh, theologian, in a sense, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German, who was a Christian and uh, lived in the time of Nazi Germany. He was, he was executed by the Nazis, um, and he was kind of, undercover for some period of time uh, in the Nazis trying to uh, infiltrate and working on a plot to take out Hitler. Um, But just, he's got a radical story. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, I want to read a paragraph to you. And he he describes what Jesus is calling these men to, calling us to uh, very specifically. It says this, The cross is laid on every Christian. 
the first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our, over our lives to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is, but it is the same death every time death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Later, he goes on and he, he says this, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. And that's absolutely right, what he's communicating there. That's what, what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand. When I'm riding into Jerusalem, I'm riding there to make salvation available to you, to save you. And you don't have to die for that. I'm the only one, the perfect sacrifice, who can pay that price. But to follow me in that path, to walk the path with Jesus, you have to give up your life. Jesus tells the disciples in Mark 8, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, will save it. So Jesus calls us to walk this path with him. And it's a glorious path, and it's one that we just talked about last week, right? This is how it's described uh, as we wrap up here in Colossians 2, verse 12. It describes this, as we walk with him, as we are crucified with Christ, it says, then we've been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So because we come in and die with Christ, because we give up our lives to walk with Christ and follow him in that path, it allows us to, to have two things. It allows us to not be in fear of losing our life because like Jesus who willingly gave up his life, we give our lives to the one who has defeated death, who gives us, in turn, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, then living and working within us. And we've been buried with him in baptism and then raised with him through faith. So as Christ has been raised, we've been raised. And because of that, we get to participate. Because Jesus was obedient, we get to participate in that eternal Palm Sunday that we find in Revelation 7, where we can be there celebrating that true salvation that took place, although it didn't seem to be salvation that was there for the people, that everlasting salvation that took place that was beginning on that original Palm Sunday, so that way we could have a forever Palm Sunday, an eternal Palm Sunday, where we are dressed in white robes, where we have palm branches and we're waving them when this is ultimate epic worship service 
crying out to the Lord with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's his faithfulness, it's his purpose on that path, his obedience to the Father that gives us that opportunity. It's his work that does that, and when we join him and walk that path with him, it allows us to live that life that Christ lived, that we've been uh, crucified with Christ, that we've been buried with him, that we've been raised with him. And as Colossians tells us, that we've been made alive together with him. He's the one who has defeated Satan, sin, death, and has enabled us to enter into this everlasting event, this Palm Sunday, that will, uh, you know, there's just there's no time on it. And it'll just be amazing. And so with that, we wrap up. As we think about Palm Sunday every year, as we think about that first Palm Sunday and consider it this morning, it's a foreshadowing to a greater event, something that is to come, something that is far off, um, but yet near, something that will last forever, where we see him as he is and we worship him as the lamb who was slain and, and you know, we'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it'll just be beautiful and amazing. And so that is what we remember, not just this Palm Sunday, not just inaugurating uh, this beginning of the Passion Week, where on Friday Christ will be crucified, and on Sunday where he will be resurrected, but that there was purpose in his plan. He was thinking about it from the beginning. Going on that donkey, and you know, I, I think about it, going down that donkey down the hill, thinking like, if they only knew how great the next one's going to be. It's just going to be epic. If they think this is awesome, wait till the next one. It's going to be so good. So let's pray, wrap up, and, uh, and we'll respond in worship together. Lord, we're thankful for your goodness and your faithfulness to us, and we're thankful that you have given us in Christ, everything that we need. Lord, you have saved us. You've reconciled us to yourself. You've made a way for us to know you and enjoy you forever. <coughs> and we're thankful that you were faithful to obey the Father that first Palm Sunday so that we could remember you every year after, every day after, so that we could have fellowship with you. Lord, and as we look to that day when you receive us to yourself, Lord, and we have this eternal Palm Sunday where we surround your throne and worship you, where we have the marriage supper of the Lamb and, and celebrate your faithfulness and your work upon the cross, Lord. Um, Lord, we wait eagerly in anticipation of that moment. And so as we're here, Lord, we pray that you would propel us into worship as we look at your faithfulness, that it would push us then into celebrating what you've done, who you are. We pray that it would lead us 
into a time of reflecting and purposing to live life in a way that would bring you glory. So, Lord, we love you and we're thankful for that good work that you've done. Lord, call us to respond in worship now. We love you. Amen.